Good morning, everybody. Had a big day yesterday. I uh, removed the snow brush from my car. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's a, it's a signal to God that we're done with the snow and the frost. Uh, I forgot it was there, so sorry it took so long. Uh, but no, actually, yesterday was a big day because we had our I Love Southside Day. And I just want to say before we start the message this morning, just a big thank you to those of you who showed up yesterday and helped serve at about a dozen different locations here on the south side and I know listen it was gorgeous yes like just gorgeous like even like today just beautiful weekend and so to give up a Saturday morning to go do that is no small thing so thank you very much for those of you who came out and, and sacrificed some time yeah. and also a big thank you to Angie over here uh, who coordinated and planned and put it all together which is a ton of work to coordinate with all those different agencies and and volunteers so thank you to Angie for that as well One other thing, just by way of reminder, we want to send our high school kids to a week at camp this summer in Georgia, and one of the things that we do to help get them there is we do some fundraising uh, things, and uh, one is a garage sale that's about to take place here uh, on Saturday, May... Nope, that's not right. It's in the bulletin, May 19th, uh, and so uh, that's... today is May 6th. That was last year's slide uh, for the garage sale. So, yeah, that's, we'll get that taken care of. Uh, uh, so, but the way you can help that out is either you can uh, rent some space and you can bring your stuff and you can sell it, or you can just donate your stuff and we sell it and keep the profits, or you can come and show up and spend thousands of dollars buying junk. That's what you can do to help us send a bunch of kids to camp, and we very much appreciate it. Now, we begin this morning a six-week series from the Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes, and so... Um, if you brought your Bibles, you go ahead. We're going to cover chapters 1 and 2 this morning. It's also going to be the screen behind me so you can follow along there. But if you brought your Zoloft or your Prozac or your Lexapro, uh, you might want to take one now as we dive into Ecclesiastes. I suggested to the staff that maybe uh, for communion, you know, you, uh, we could take the bread and the cup and then just put some antidepressants on the table and that would work out too. But they seem to think there might be some liability insurance issues with that, so... But listen, if you're like in the midst of a good midlife crisis, or if you're kind of maybe looking at the end of your life and kind of with a rear view uh, look now thinking, really, this is it, this is the sum totality of my life, have I got a book of the Bible for you? It's Ecclesiastes. It kind of has more of a grumpy old man vibe than it does. In fact, this here would be the author of Ecclesiastes. It's got that... In my day, we had to walk 10 miles to school with metal spikes through our feet, and we liked it. That's kind of the vibe you're going to get from Ecclesiastes. It is the perfect book of the Bible for Mental, Mental Health Awareness Month, which happens to be in May. I had no idea. I didn't plan that. It just sort of came together. So I want to give a shout-out to all of my fellow mental health strugglers this morning. For those of you who are depressed, whether it's seasonally because you live in South Bend, Indiana, and that permacloud is here, or if it's situationally or clinically, for those of you who are my bipolar peeps, for those of you who have crippling, <laughs> crippling anxiety or panic attacks or phobias of all sorts, to close to my heart, those with uh, obsessive compulsive disorders or paranoid schizophrenic or social anxieties of agoraphobias or just even multiple personal personality disorders to all eight of you, I just shout out to you <laughs> this morning. Welcome to our book of the Bible. Like, and like, uh, let me, I can just say that like, my family has issues, so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to mental health. Like, my parents are nuts. Like, we've all known that for a while. 
My uh, mental illness of choice is obsessive-compulsive uh, disorders. Mine are more cognitive in nature instead of behavioral. Like some, you know, they got to wash their hands 25 times. I don't have to wash mine 18 and I'm good. So I feel like I'm doing well. Like it's a, you know, so I have to check the light switches all the time. But mine is like where half my brain is trying to convince my other half of a reality that's just not there or not true. And so I know what it's like to experience a panic attack and then you get stuck in that panic loop where you're actually just anxious about the panic itself and how that kind of feels and all those sorts of things. I kind of tend to, I tend to concentrate on the more the hypochondriac scale of things. And so um, half my brain is trying to tell the other half that you really do have this, even though you've never been diagnosed of it, but this is what you're really dying of at the moment. And so I'm okay to hear like your diagnoses and whatever diseases and illnesses you have. It's just you can't tell me your symptoms. Because if you go down the list of your symptoms by 2 o'clock this afternoon, I will have every last symptom that you have. So if it's like a swollen purple tongue, I'll look in the mirror like, oh my gosh, I'm dying, like in a couple hours. And, you know, my poor kids... Um, my wife, her whole family struggles with uh, just anxiety, panic type of stuff. In fact, her dad, the very first time he ever had a panic attack, so my father-in-law, he's taken uh, anxiety medication uh, for most of his adult life, but the first time he ever had a, a panic attack, uh, it was when Kelly's older sister, Lori, uh, when uh, her mother gave birth to her sister. Uh, it was back in the day when uh, the fathers weren't allowed in the room. They kind of wait out in the waiting room smoking cigars. I get like, why do we go away from that? Like, I don't, you know. Um, <laughs> They never got him and told him that he had a kid. Like he just waited in the waiting room for hours and hours and hours and hours and didn't ask and thought something was wrong and had his first panic attack. So he's had issues and Kelly's mom, she's been on medication. In fact, uh, Kelly, after the birth of our second son, Caleb, uh, she suffered postpartum depression and it's lasted for 18 years. <laughs> so <laughs> I've asked her for permission, everyone relax, we're all right. Like, Sam's gotta find somewhere else to sleep tonight. <laughs> She started, she started taking Zoloft, and man, it was like night and day. In fact, uh, at some point in time, she wanted to get off of it, so she just stopped taking it. <laughs> I remember one afternoon, I went home for lunch, and I'm not going back to work until you take this pill. Like, it's that. It was like... Anyhow, um, I'm intimately connected to depression and mental health issues, so let me just go ahead and jump into some of my own working assumptions so you know where I'm coming from. Here's what I say, number one, is depression is a real thing. And if the doctor thinks you should be on depression medication... I think you should take it. And if you do, it is not a sign that you are somehow inferior or less than as a Christian and follower of Jesus at all. In fact, if you have any religious leaders tell you that it is unspiritual to go on depression medication, you should just say to them, you're an idiot. Like, just say that. Like, this will be all right. Because, I mean, we wouldn't say about any other thing, anything else going on in our physical body, would we? Like, if you have asthma, what would we say? Yeah, you should get an inhaler. Like, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you should follow the protocol given to you by your oncologist. If you have any sort of, your body needs insulin, we'd never say, well, you, you're unspiritual if you take insulin. And so why would we do that for depression or other mental health issues? But I'd also say, number two, in depression, we fire on all sides, is how I'd put that. Meaning, hey, listen, uh, if you should pray through and pray to God in regards to your depression and being released from that. That's great. And you should also go talk to a therapist. That would be fantastic as well. And especially if you have like situationally specific forms of depression, maybe change something in your life. If you need medication, take it. What I mean by that is it's a comprehensive, we fire on all sides approach to depression. Number three, you don't overcome depression by trying harder or listening to someone who's trying to tell you to just get over it or why don't you smile, or you just have so much in life to be happy about, I don't understand why you're depressed. Like Those are typically very unhelpful to people who are walking through depression. And the fourth thing I would say is sadness and depression are not the same thing. 
Like sadness is a legitimate emotion and a legitimate feeling that we walk through times in life. And if you begin to feel sadness or people that you love are in kind of a state of sadness, that's not necessarily the same thing as depression. I would just say be careful in regards to that. But let me also take care of some assumptions or expectations you might have for the six-week series. Uh, let me just say up front, this is not a six steps to overcoming your depression. So if you showed up like, man, I've been depressed and I can't wait to, this is going to be colossally disappointing to you. Uh, I will not give you a Tony Robbins six steps to overcoming your depression and living your best life because I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm not going to tell you how to overcome your depression. What I'm doing is acknowledging that depression exists and in the midst of it, you can still walk as a disciple of Jesus. And I want Ecclesiastes to provide you with language that in the midst of where you are, it resonates, that allows you to connect and gives you a voice to where you're at. And sometimes when you're depressed, that's what you need. So if that's where you are, first, um, congratulations on getting out of bed this morning. I know that in itself could be a big deal. And then walking into a room with a lot of other people could be compounding. You're doing really good this morning. Um, but uh, I'm just, I'm going to offer this, like, it's one of those things where sometimes you just plan things and you have a gorgeous sunny day outside and you walk in in a good mood and, and like the worship's like, man, that's fantastic. And then the preacher gets up and talks about depression. You're like, really? So I like just store this away if, if, you, if you need to. But here's what I know for those who are just walking through a hard time. And I keep saying depression, but it could be anything, suffering, grief, just disappointment in life. You just got hit with some news, that, uh, just, you know, just a hard space in life. And there's nothing more obnoxious in those states when you're there than a overly triumphant Christianity. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but when you're walking through sadness, grief, suffering, pain, disappointment, the sting of life, regret, the last thing you want to see is some obnoxious Christian just, oh, praise Jesus, isn't life wonderful, too blessed to be depressed, hallelujah, let me sing more praise songs and eat Chick-fil-A nuggets. Like, I'm not sure the Chick-fil-A nugget parts came from. That was just what I was hungry for this week when I wrote in. Usually, I just want to punch them in the face when you're in that place, right? Like, just shut. Ecclesiastes is more of a grumpy cat kind of book for us. And listen, we wouldn't be the first to struggle with an over-realized eschatology, is what I'd say. It's sort of an overly triumphant view and form of Christianity. The church of Corinth struggled with this too. Like Paul has to write two letters to the church of Corinth to kind of tell them, you've not yet arrived. Like they thought they'd arrived. Like they were speaking in tongues and, and they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. They were casting even aside earthly relationships like marriage. Like what do we need that for? They became kind of arrogant and prideful in their views of their own spirituality. So Paul has to write, and I think he's being sarcastic here, uh, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8. He says, already you have all that you want, and already you become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're so strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. Like you hear Paul saying, I have not arrived. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. And so Paul has to remind them, like, listen, you, you've not yet arrived. 
You're not going to be able just to just name it and claim it for everything going on in your life. And so I just want to draw back on the last series that we just finished last week, the, you know, In South Bend As It Is In Heaven, where we talked about there are other kingdoms that exist on the earth today. And because of that, suffering is a reality for us. We still get sick. Our loved ones, and, and eventually us, die. We walk through difficult times. Our children encounter difficulties. This is the life that we live in. We do not deny the reality and power of the resurrection, but we also confess the cross of Jesus and Him crucified, and we are still awaiting the fullness of God's kingdom reign. And thus, for now, there are times when we're not okay. And when you're not okay, an overly triumphant view of Christianity, sometimes often found in charismatic circles, isn't going to help. And oftentimes it's because Christianity, I think we're kind of uncomfortable with suffering. Maybe it's because we're American Christians. Like maybe it's just because we're Americans, we are uncomfortable with the idea of suffering. We prefer praise much more over what I would call lament. And that's why most of our songs are all praise. I don't know if you know, like when we sing on Sunday mornings, usually we get together, it's all, you know, it's kind of high praise, kind of has the tone. Very rarely do you have a song that's just lament. But if you read through the Psalms, you'll see in the Psalms, not only Psalms of praise, which is all about, you know, praise God for this, praise God for that, God's amazing, God is wonderful, God rescues. And those Psalms are great when things in your life are going well, but when you are standing in a cemetery saying goodbye to a loved one, a praise Psalm isn't going to be your language. And the good news is the Psalms have a bunch of Psalms that are what we call laments. These are the things that we cry out to God, we sing to God when we are not okay today. Things like Psalm 74 verse 1 says this, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? <laughs> okay, like we don't sing those songs, do we? <laughs> why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance, who you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwell? Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standard as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. So how long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. This is the psalm of, where are you? You should do something about this. These are the psalms for when life isn't okay. And the most predominant question that's asked in these lament psalms is the question, why? Why is this happening? And where are you? Don't you see me lying in bed, crying myself to sleep? And it's a, listen, laments are a language of faith because what they say is, if I can't get an answer from you, then I'm not going to get an answer. And we typically want to move people out of lament to quickly just being okay and being happy and just get back to praise. And sometimes that's not the most helpful thing to people who are walking through a rough time, right? I mean, I remember uh, growing up in uh, church, in our hymnal, uh, we had a song that just had that movement. Like, I, I know things aren't, you're like, you don't feel good, you're kind of depressed, but let's just, it, it went something like this. Maybe, maybe you've heard this song. It went like this. If the skies above you are gray, you are feeling so blue. If your cares and burdens seem great all the whole day through. Anyone know that song at all? Anyone heard that song? Okay, a handful of people, yeah. And then it moves over to the chorus, and it's, you got to sing and be happy today, press along. It's all about being singing. Like, so if you're like at a rough time, like, 
So let me get this right. In the of my depression, the key is just sing and be happy? Like that's the, it's like a Disney movie, which I love, but it's not right for right now. Because <laughs> if you just buried your spouse, the answer is no. You're, you're more like grumpy cat with someone trying to tell you to sing. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And even some of the worship songs we sing today, listen, I'm not cutting on our song. I do like them. But even just a couple weeks ago, we sang the song, King of My Heart. Uh, and it's all about how good God is, and then it moves to the bridge, and the bridge, I don't know, you, you might, if somebody better singer, could, you might recognize, it's like, you'll never get me, or what does it say? It says, you're never going to let me down, you're never going to let, you're never going to let me, and just over and over again, that's the bridge. Well, I promise you, if you've ever sat in a chair at the hospital holding the, the hand of a family member begging God for healing and they die, it's going to feel like God let you down. And it's going to be hard to sing that song. In fact, I would just say if that's where you're at, maybe you just don't. Maybe you'll sing it again later, but not now because you're living in lament. And that's a different thing. And sometimes we watch the news or we experience something in life. We have our hearts devastated. We receive the bad news. And we're not in that, isn't life amazing? We're rather in the, this is bullcrap. Well, if that's where you're at, Ecclesiastes is for you. And so my goal in this series isn't to pull you out of your depression, although if that happens, I won't be disappointed. My goal is just to give you language to turn to, a path to walk that resonates with you in the midst of your sadness, your grief, your suffering, your pain, your depression, a spirituality that works, even in depression. And I would just say at the outset, you're kind of in good company. Like if you just kind of study uh, the greatest characters of our faith, even biblically, I mean, even post-biblical times, like most of them have walked through a series of depression. Or as John of the Cross says, the dark night of the soul, where it just feels like God is silent or seemingly completely absent. There's moments of real depression and despair. Like if you've ever read the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, good grief, that guy was bipolar for sure. Like, like manic depressant all the time. And some of, our main, some of our main characters just kind of even had moments in life where they just thought, God, I just wish you'd kill me now. Like they just kind of had the suicidal, I wish just end everything right now. Moses had it. Job, you remember the story of Job, right, in the Old Testament? Let me read you some of this language from Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Could you imagine that? Like, cursed August 30th, right? I just said that out loud so you know my birthday is August 30th. You should write that in your calendar right now, so... He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said, a boy is conceived that day. May it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it that night. May thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days or curse the sea curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on, the, on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I'd be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with the kings and the rulers of the earth. Who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? This is like depression right here, right? This language. Jonah had this. Elijah had this. And so when we turn to Ecclesiastes, it's anonymous, meaning we don't really know who wrote it. 
My guess is that someone who's living after the exile of God's people in 586 B.C., and as you read it, will have two voices. There'll be kind of a narrator, a narrator who will speak in the third person, and then we'll have the voice of the one that we call the teacher, or in the Hebrew, Koheleth. Now, the writer of the book wants to put the voice of the teacher in the mouth of most likely, I think, King Solomon, although he's never named. And what I mean is, he would like you to think this is a, the words are from King Solomon. I know that kind of sounds deceptive to our ears and sensibilities in 2018, but it was a very common practice in ancient Near Eastern literature to write taking on the persona of an ancient figure. But that will become more clear here as we get into Ecclesiastes. But I do want to say, Ecclesiastes is also full of contradictions. And when I said that out loud, that's hard for us because when we think about the Bible, what we don't usually think of, oh, contradictions. Like we like a harmonized Bible, one that kind of agrees with everything else. It's kind of clean and sanitary. That really isn't Ecclesiastes because we're going to be reading it. And the moment it looks like the author arrives at his main point and delivers it with clarity, like just a few verses later, he's going to say something completely opposite that contradicts it. And that's on purpose because Ecclesiastes is a commentary on the problem of and the meaning of life. And so with that, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there were lots of sons of David who were king in Jerusalem, and while not specifically mentioned again, I do think Solomon is in view. And this will become more clear as I think the writer wants you to consider that Solomon, out of all the other kings that existed, had the time and the means to pursue all sorts of things in life. And thus, he can speak with authority on the meaning of life. And when the teacher, who's probably facing their own mortality, looks back on life, this is their conclusion. Verse 2, okay. Meaningless? Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And already at the outset of the book of Ecclesiastes, you are given its main theme. And it will be repeated and flushed out over and over again. And he begins with a real pick-me-upper. <laughs> Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, this will not be in your 2018 inspirational calendars that you got on your desk at work. Most people don't print this verse off and declare it to be their life verse and put it on their refrigerator or in their mirror. And even the translation here for meaningless, which is what the NIV says, that works. But I think even a better translation for the Hebrew word here is absurd. Absurd, absurd. Everything is absurd. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, those t-shirts, the Life is Good brand. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes would be wearing Life is Absurd, his, his merchandise of choice. And now for your morning pick-me-up, how exactly is life absurd? Let the teacher tell you. Verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. Nor the ear its fill of hearing, what has been done, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. Well, 
that job you're working so hard in, dedicating so much of your life to, guess what? Absurd. Meaningless. Like, seriously, you drop dead, they'll most likely have your position posted before the paper will print your obituary. You are replaceable. And guess what? This is just like someday I'm going to die, and that will affect a small list of people who might really you know, be around my inner circle, be really affected by my absence, and it really is a small list of people. But you know what will happen next after my death? You know what will take place next? The earth will keep spinning on its axis. People will wake up and go to work. They'll send their kids to school. They'll pay their bills. They'll get their hair cut. They'll make plans for the weekend and go on with life. Generations come, generations go. In fact, it's when the teacher even thinks about like the sun and the wind and the streams and sea, it's the perfect analogy for them. It's like the same thing over and over and over. It's not that you can't enjoy a sunset or not that the wind can leave you in a state of awe or that National Geographic can't capture the beauty of a stream with a picture. When you think about it, the sun setting happened yesterday and the day before that and last year and has since the beginning of time. It isn't new. The wind, same thing. Oh, look, the streams keep flowing over the sea, never overflowing. It just returns over and over and over and over. It's absurd. And it becomes for him an analogy of life. Generation after generation, the same thing. And then guess what? To make things worse, There'll be a generation in the not-so-distant future, they won't even remember who you are. You ever see the movie, uh, Disney movie Coco? You ever see the movie yet? You should, it's a great movie. Go, go see it sometime. But most of us can barely remember the name. Like, how many of you can remember the names of your great-grandparents? Like, anyone know your great-grandparents' names? Okay. How about your great-great-grandparents? Anyone know their names? Your, all right, let's go back one more time. Your great-great-great-grandparents. Anyone know their names? Just, just very few. Truth is, you're going to be forgotten. And even if your name is passed down via Ancestry.com, there'll be a point in the not-so-distant future where no one will have any real active memories of you. They might know your name, but they have no memories of you. So, how are you feeling? Everyone feel good? <laughs> Isn't this inspiring? Like, what are you coming to church for this morning? <laughs> so, for those of you walking through a midlife crisis or through depression, the teacher speaking what our emotions feel. This is absurd. And wait, there's more. Surely something is worth it, Right? Like, surely we can hang on to something in life. Wisdom can't disappoint us, can it? Well, let's turn to verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straightened, cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom of knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So the teacher wants you to know that all those advanced degrees that you get in college, like, in fact, have you seen this weekend everybody posting their graduation picture? Like, isn't that great? Like, like you, know, you know what the teacher says about that? Meaningless. <laughs> so I want you, this afternoon, when you see your friends post that, just, just type, meaningless. <laughs> like, just, just over and over, see how that goes. You're a jerk. <laughs> and, and worse... With much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the reason why is because now you see clearly folly and foolishness, and it's everywhere. And the more you know, it just leads to more grief. You ever heard that phrase, ignorance is bliss? 
Sometimes ignorance is bliss. We should stop all of that. You know, the little, the more you know, the PSAs are going like, maybe we should just stop those. It's sort of like, you know, eating something you really like, you really enjoy in life. Oh, this just makes me so happy because I have very little. Just so happy. And the scientists come out and say it's killing you. Like, you say, really? Do they need to know that? Like, don't tell me these things. Let me just eat this in peace. All right, okay, wisdom. That's, not, that's all meaningless. Not at least pleasure, like pleasure. So verse, chapter 2, verse 1 says this. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. <laughs> Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided, though, by, by my, with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. I was on Pinterest all the time. I built... <laughs> Houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Now, my guess is they didn't have avocados because if you would plant avocados, meaning. <laughs> I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well the delight of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this, my wisdom still, still stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and, there, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, there's a whole sermon I could preach from just this passage uh, that I'm not going to because of time, just about kind of, the, I think this is the spirit of our age, that pursuit of pleasure and instant gratification. We live in a time and place where we believe we should have everything and we should have it now. And I don't say, like, I'm, I'm no exception. Like, all you have to do is watch me. Like, if I'm in a space where my internet gets slow, like it's just slow, I mean, I just act like, are you, are you serious? This is ridiculous. Like some big catastrophic first world problem going down. Just overwhelming. Yeah, go to, if somebody forgot to put pickles on my sandwich, you know, I'm crying out in indignation. So what happens is we pursue whatever can make us feel good. And a quick note to those of you who are walking through a difficult time, maybe depression, those sorts of things, this will be especially tempting for those who are going through sadness and grief and pain and depression. There is a reason why self-medicating uh, with substances like drugs and alcohol are even more pressing and tempting in the midst of depression. We don't want to feel the pain of our depression anymore. And here's the truth. Drugs and alcohol can numb it, at least temporarily. But the problem is that you can't selectively decide what to numb. Alcohol doesn't work like that. It doesn't say, oh, you want these negative things to be numb. That's no problem. Uh, and then the good things will let that pass. No, it just kind of it numbs everything. And then you have to wake up the next morning and try to piece back together again what you did, who you texted, what you said, even how you made it in your bed because you've got no memory of it. And the teacher has pursued pleasure and watched many people pursue pleasure. And in the end, his commentary is, it's absurd and meaningless. But now we come to one of those sections where there's a slight contradiction. It's almost like maybe I overstated my case a little bit. So he wants to back up in verse 12. He wants to go back to wisdom for a moment and say, listen, okay, all right, all right. I might have overstated. If you have the choice between wisdom and stupidity, 
pick wisdom. He'll say this in verse 12. And then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom, but also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? But I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their head, and the fool walks in the darkness. <laughs> so like, okay, I might have gotten carried away. If you have to choose between being wise and being a fool, pick being wise. It is better. Wisdom is better than stupidity. And right now you're like, well, all right. Now we've got something to anchor to. Wisdom is good, at least better than being stupid. Right on. But then Grumpy Cat shows back up, <laughs> and he goes, eh, actually, both the wise and the fool die. Let's <laughs> say so this is the end of verse 14. But... I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Death is the great leveler. And this will be a common theme in Ecclesiastes. It is a view from the perspective of death. And in the end, both the wise and the fool die. You should keep that in mind. Now... I don't know what your plans are for tomorrow. Um, uh, how, many, how many of you would like to take tomorrow off of work? Like, just let me call in. Anyone went off tomorrow? I got no problem. Just call your boss and tell them you're not coming into work. When they ask why, tell them that working is meaningless and absurd, and then just send them Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 23, and see how that goes. Because this is what it says, verse 17. So I hated life. So don't highlight that in your Bible. <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil under which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. What he's saying is someday you're going to die or retire, and someone else is going to get your business and it could be one of your kids, and your kid could be an idiot. You worked all those years and handed your idiot kid the family business. This is another absurdity in life. Another, you've got to be kidding me, moment of the meaninglessness of life. And so I think the teacher would say this. Quit working so hard to pass on to your kids a large inheritance. Except for you, Chuck and Diane, he's not talking to you. Take your hard work and earnings and go on a cruise. Pull up in your kid's driveway in a brand new convertible sports car and say, guess what I just did? Go for the experience you've always wanted but felt too frugal to go after. Let your kids fend for themselves. Again, not you, Chuck and Diane. <laughs> and now that we're thoroughly depressed, let me also introduce you to another theme that will rise out of Ecclesiastes. It is a positive note. Hang on to it because there aren't many but it will show up several times. 
And the first time it shows up is at the end of the second chapter, after everything in life has been declared absurd. Life is still absurd. It is still meaningless. It isn't t- he's, he's not taking back his grumpy cat negative assessment. He's simply saying, in light of the absurdity, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What they say is, you know what? Just go simple. Get out of these huge, lofty, weighty, oppressive thoughts. Are they true? Yeah. They're true, but you're going to drive yourself into greater depression if you focus on these looming existential issues of life. Just go simple. Eat some good food. Drink some good drink. And if you have a moment in your work where you have a little pride that allows you to say, well, look at that. Look what I did. I kind of enjoy that. Shoot for that. They are the carpe diem moments of life, the seize the day moments. And Ecclesiastes will offer us these moments. And we'll pick up there next week with our seize the day moment. But for this morning, if you're walking in the midst of the absurdities of life, however you might interpret that, the meaninglessness of so much that is, the oppression of suffering, grief, pain, sadness, depression, I want you to know you aren't the first. You won't be the last. And there is a voice and language offered to us in Ecclesiastes to give voice to our frustrations a resonating and connecting theme that verifies what we feel. Not to move us into greater depths of despair, but to allow us language to approach God and the spiritual life, that sometimes our path on earth is through the absurd. And in the absurd, we still walk with God. It doesn't mean you are unspiritual. It doesn't mean you are unfaithful. It doesn't mean that you are less than weak, pathetic, or all the other stuff that you're saying to yourself. It just means you're experiencing the absurdity of life. And like the writer of Ecclesiastes, you will experience it hanging on to your faith that God still is today, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray together. God, I know that whenever uh, a room with this many people have assembled, we all have our own stories, not only of life, but even just this past week. And some of those stories have led us to a place where we're in a good mood and we're full of joy and praise. And others this past week have led us to a space that everything feels absurd and meaningless. And we're fighting depression and sadness and grief and suffering. So for those who find themselves in that place, I ask for your presence to be with them. And I ask, Lord, for you to rescue. And I ask for you to provide things like food and drink and a small bit of enjoyment. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.